Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Jonah, the first three chapters. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose and fled to Tar- but Jonah rose and fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And then they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not his innocent blood For you, O Lord, have done it as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed, to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, and yet again, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed up on me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called out for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed on or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen, Susan. Thank you. Uh, thanks for that long reading. I warned her last night that it was going to be a terribly long reading this morning, and thank you for bearing with us. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. I'm glad to see you in the, in the doldrums of summer to be with us this morning. This text in Jonah uh, is, uh, is something far more than we often make it out to be in our teaching of our children. It is really not the story. The main point of the story, anyway, is not... Uh, that God sends a whale to swallow Jonah. The main point of the story is that Jonah uh, has failed to do what God has called him to do, and yet the Lord shows him mercy. I mean, it really is a story about God and his mercy, and it's, and it's interesting how we can... I mean, it is a pretty amazing thing, isn't it, to think of a man being swallowed by a fish? Uh, and, all the, and God speaks to fish, and all of those kind of strange things that happen there, but there's a lot more going on in the story uh, than we often give credit for. And so I wanted to read the whole thing, and really it could almost stand alone, couldn't it? And, and, and really we just want to imaginatively this morning uh, think into that story and allow it to help us understand uh, what we've been talking about all summer, and that is that we are a people who've been given a mission. And that mission is to take the gospel not only to the least, to those, the poor and the needy, and those who need to have their physical needs met, but also to take the gospel to the lost, that there are... Many, many thousands of people in our city and people all over the world in places in the 1040 window in Western Europe and secular cultures and in many places who do not uh, have access to the gospel. And it is our responsibility to take the gospel to those people. So we have a mission. And so for the summer, we're looking at this idea of what it means for us to live as a people who have a mission. And what better text uh, in all of the Bible, really, to look at when you're considering our mission, our failure to, to you know, live into that mission, and yet God's mercy to us even in our failure, than this text in Jonah. Because Jonah is a, he's meant to be, the story is meant to be a living parallel, or excuse me, a living parable to the nation of Israel and to us of their failure and ours to live as God's missionaries to the nations of the earth. 
we, we saw last week, God intended in the forming of Israel, his people, to have them to be a people who would intentionally live missionally and not selfishly. That he had indeed blessed them, as we saw. He gave them victory over their enemies. He settled them into the land that he promised to Abraham. Indeed, he's made them into a great nation. In fact, one of the most successful and powerful and affluent nations in all of the ancient Near Eastern culture. They were blessed. Just as he promised Abraham, which we looked at last week, they were blessed, but they were not yet a blessing. And so Jonah's story is meant to come into their life to be a reminder and an invitation to repentance. Uh, The first word in the Hebrew there, which obviously you can't see because it's in English, is a conjunction that is meant to join Jonah's story with another story, a larger story, the story already in progress. So it should read, and the word of the Lord, or, you know, it says, now the word of the Lord. So in other words, there's a story that's going on that comes before this particular story in the Bible. And this is something that our culture really has lost. Postmodernism rejects any notion of a meta-narrative. Any idea that there's a a master storyline that helps make sense of our lives and tells us who we are and what we're doing here and what life is all about. But the Bible rejects that way of thinking and insists that the only way to understand who you are and what your life is supposed to be about and kind of where we're headed in this big thing called earth and human history is to understand the larger story of what God is doing in human history to bring about his purposes in the earth. God has a mission. We said that last week, but God has a mission. And unless we understand that God has a mission and that we as his people are called to join him in his mission, in the unique circumstances of our lives, we will fail to live faithfully as his followers. And so the story that comes before this, this story is just this. That God, who created the heavens and the earth, is on mission to bring the gospel to all of the nations of the earth so that they might be glad in him and worship him. The church is his chosen instrument in accomplishing that mission in the world. In other words, what Ephesians 1 says, which we read as our call to worship, God has saved us. If you claim to be a Christian, God has saved us. He has blessed us, not for our own sake, but for the sake of making us a blessing to our city and to our world. Especially to the parts of our city and the parts of our world that do not know him yet. And so being a Christian is nothing less than understanding that and bringing all of our life into alignment with the truth of that. You see, however, as we shall see in the story of Jonah the prophet, we are constantly trying to reimagine Christianity to be something more domestic, something more pedestrian and safe, and the scriptures refuse to let us do that, and that's why we have this book. Uh, Jonah's story is our story. Jonah's mission is our mission. Jonah's failure is our failure. This is our story. Uh, And so what a great thing that God would give it to us, right? So let's look at it together for a few minutes this morning. Just under these three headings, you'll see down at the very bottom of the back page of your insert there. I want, to see, I want you to see first Jonah running, and then I want you to see Jonah remembering, and then I want you to see Jonah repenting. And that's hopefully, I'm hoping that's kind of the steps we go through this morning together as we kind of look at this book, that we would see Jonah running, Jonah remembering, and Jonah repenting, that we would be awakened to our own sin in the ways that we're running away from God, that we would remember in the same fashion Jonah remembers. So there's a gospel remembrance that happens, which leads to a profound, uh, at least momentarily, a profound heart uh, repentance. Okay, so we're just going to do those things. Starting here with Jonah running, chapter 1, okay? 
Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, arise and go. Now, this is standard protocol. We're reading through Ezekiel in, CB, in our community Bible reading. Uh, and, and nearly every chapter, if you've noticed, if you're reading along with us, and I hope you are, the chapter heading begins, there's the chapter heading, and then the first words typically of the chapter are, and the word of the Lord came to me, or and the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the prophet. And so, typically you would read something like this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the prophet, saying, arise and go to Nineveh. And Jonah arose and went to Nineveh because the word, the God's word, is his authoritative marching orders. I mean, that's what you'd expect to read here, which makes what happens so scandalous. The word of the Lord says, arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And we read, and Jonah arose and went to Tarshish. What? What happened? And so at the very beginning, we're confronted with the reality of God's absolute authority over us. The word of the Lord came, we're told. The word of God came. It's, it's this technical Hebrew phrase that is used to describe the calling and functioning of a prophet. You see, in the Bible, a prophet, especially in the Old Testament, was by def- definition at God's disposal. He was God's man. He was to go where God told him to go, to speak only what God told him to speak. He was God's representative, his servant, his mouthpiece. Every area of his life was dictated to him by God's will. The word of the Lord came. And so when Jonah disobeys the word of the Lord, it is much more than just an isolated event in his life. It's a resignation. He's saying, in essence, I'm not going to, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to run my life from now on. I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm no longer going to get my identity, my purpose in life from what you say. I'm in charge of my life. But remember, remember what I said. Jonah is meant to be understood as representative of all of us. The, you know, in the same way that a prophet's life was defined by the coming word, the word of God coming into his life, so we, our lives too, are to be defined by the word of God, just as Jonah's was as well. If you think in Genesis, in the first few chapters, everything was created by a word. God spoke and the universe came into existence And that means that everything that exists has a purpose for existing. And that purpose can only be found in God's design and intention. And that means that you and I, you know, you exist for a purpose. You have a calling. And that purpose and that calling, whatever it may be, whatever the unique circumstances of it might be, can only be found in God's authoritative word. But what the Bible is teaching us through this story of Jonah is that we've all turned away from him. We're all trying to build an identity apart from him. We're all trying to run our lives without him. And this is what the Bible means when it talks about sin. Sin is refusing to submit to God's authoritative word. Sin is is turning our backs on the calling of God and running from him. Look what the text says here. Three times. In verse 3 twice and then in verse 10 of chapter 1, it says, Jonah is trying to run away from the presence, literally the face of, of the Lord. Now, isn't that funny? Because do you remember the psalmist saying, though I go to the far side of the sea, you're there. Jonah, this, this, this is the irony. Jonah is intent on running from the presence of the omnipresent God. He, he's running from the face of God. Jonah wants to run away from God's watchful presence. He wants a life without God. He He wants to live without God looking on and telling him what he can and can't do. He wants his independence. 
And the story of Jonah is teaching us that we're all running from God like this, but there's also something else here that I want you to see, and it's that there's a certain strategy that we use for doing this. Jonah is called to Nineveh. He chooses to head to Tarshish. Okay? And so it's this, it's this kind of play between these two places that's happening here that's very important too. So let's talk about Nineveh for, for just a minute, okay? Nineveh was, to say the least, not a desirable ministry post. Okay? Nineveh was the capital of the nation of Assyria, which was a rising political superpower during this day, and the arch enemy, by the way, of the nation of Israel. They were the people who would eventually come and take Israel into ex- exile. The Assyrians were particularly known for their brutality. For example, uh, the 11-year-old boys in the room probably love this. They, they, one of their favorite pastimes was to adorn the walls of the banqueting halls in their cities with the skins of their conquered enemies. So you can understand and sympathize with Jonah's hesitation when God says, go to those people, your enemies, the ones that like to skin people and put the skins on the walls and tell them God's coming to overthrow you. (laughs) A modern equivalent would be something like this, asking somebody to go to the city square in Baghdad in the days after 9-11 and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and call Saddam Hussein to repent. It's a death sentence. And Jonah says, no, thank you. And he chooses Tarshish instead. Now, a couple things about Tarshish. Okay, first, everybody agrees when, when they look at this, all the smart people, uh, that Tarshish is as far away in the opposite direction as you can possibly go from Nineveh. So part of the story, part of what the story is teaching is, is that Jonah doesn't just disobey, he disobeys with flourish. But also, Tarshish was known to be the resort destination of the day. It was a distant paradise. It was, and I've said this before, it was, like in the commercials, your own very, your very own personal Corona commercial. Right? And so, instead of Baghdad, Jonah chooses the Bahamas. And who doesn't want to be a missionary to the Bahamas, right? You see... And, and, what, and what we're learning is, is this is a choice that comes to every single one of us to either take up our cross, whatever the specifics of that might be, and the answer is called to go to the Ninevehs of our city and our world, to the hard places, right, to embrace the possibility of suffering, to sacrifice our standard of living for the sake of the mission, or, or the other option is to try to create a Tarshish-like or Tarshish brand of Christianity that doesn't require much of anything and allows us to keep calling the shots in our lives. And I want to tell you, um, <clears throat> excuse me, with the limited experience that I have and wisdom granted, for the most part, I am convinced and I really believe that American evangelicals have chosen Tarshish. Uh, we want to live with God on the beaches of the Bahamas and not in the war zones of Baghdad. And can I just say, this is why Islam remains entrenched in the Middle East and why it's gaining ground in Africa and Western Europe and other secular nations. Because they're willing to suffer, and we're not. And Jonah's story teaches us that when we choose Tarshish, what happens is, is our Christianity malfunctions. When we walk away from God's call, look, it's right here. When we walk away from the call to radical sacrifice and service, we forfeit the power and the presence he promises as we move out with him in mission. Because look what happens here. Look what happens to Jonah. We're told in verse 3 he goes down to Joppa, 
to catch a ship to Tarshish. And once on board, verse 5, he goes down into the hole. And then again in verse 5, he lays down to go to sleep. Down, 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 down. And this, is, this way of saying it is meant to indicate that what's happening here is more than just light sleep. It's a deep, some people say even like a hypnotic sleep. So in Genesis 2, 21... Uh, When God comes to Adam and he's about to form the woman from a rib, he needs to take a rib from Adam's side to create the woman with. We're told that a deep sleep comes over Adam, and it's the same word. So if you see the metaphor, this is the anesthesia before the surgery. And if you've ever been put out before surgery, you know what it's like, right? You're not just asleep. I mean, you're like slobbering all over the place and saying things that you, I mean, you're completely oblivious. And that's Jonah. The storm is raging, the boat is breaking up, the sailors are yelling and screaming and throwing cargo overboard. Everybody is in a panic, and he's sleeping. And the lesson, see, the lesson the story is teaching us is that if we forsake the call to Nineveh and choose Tarshish instead, it will anesthetize us. We will eventually, eventually become numb, cold, lifeless, Calloused, comatose, unfeeling, unmoved, unaffected, hard-hearted, dead. And what the scripture would teach is that this is God's judgment. That a hard heart, an unfeeling heart, you know, like this. This picture of Jonah in the bottom of the boat while the storm is raging asleep. He completely, you know oblivious and in this deep hypnotic sleep, this is God's judgment. Because you see, the ultimate judgment that God could give or could bring upon your life is that you would be sinning, that you would be under God's condemnation and be completely unaware of it. I mean, to never feel guilty, to never have your conscience protest, right? I mean, the scariest thing in the world is to be living in open rebellion against God like Jonah is here and not be bothered at all by it, to not even be losing sleep over it. And so we need to really ask some hard questions as we contemplate these verses. And it's things like this. If you can sin, if you can directly disobey God's command and not be affected by it, not feel guilty on the other side of it, not be undone by it, then there's a chance you're under God's judgment. I mean, if you can come to church and it's just going through the motions, there's no deep joy. You know, you don't really feel anything. The words of the songs are just words. You just listen to God's word being read and preached and and it doesn't move you or confess you to sin, I mean, move you to confess your sin or move you to repentance, there's a good chance that you're under the judgment of God. If you can be in the middle of a really hard time in your life and it not cause you to think about your sin and cry out to God for mercy, but you just blame everybody else or get mad at God, it might be judgment. See, Jonah's sleeping. We see him asleep. And it's the perfect metaphor for Israel. It's the perfect metaphor for us. No fire, no passion for the mission, just a sleepy yawn. And so the second thing then we learn, if this is Jonah running, then the second thing we learn is from this story is how God deals with us when we run from him, how he awakens us from our sleep. And the answer is, and I wish I had another one, but it's here, he sends storms. And here's where we really have it backwards, okay? And I thought about a lot about this this week. Here's where we really do have it backwards. The storm is not God's judgment. The sleep is. You see this? The storm is not the judgment. The sleep is. The storm's God's mercy. So the, if you're in the middle of a storm, if your life is just going crazy or 
things are falling apart on you, that is not, if, you're, if you belong to him, that is not a sign that God hates you. It's a sure sign that he loves you. But if you're cruising right, right along and, you know, nothing bad ever happens and it's just kind of all going just fine, that's what should make you nervous. The storm is not God's judgment. The sleep is. The storm is God's merciful provision. I mean, Jesus tells a story in the Gospel of Luke about a young man who asks for his inheritance early and runs off to a distant country. You might remember this story. And things go well for the boy for a while until the money runs out and he finds himself penniless and friendless and homeless. I mean, it's a familiar story. But there's one little detail in the story that I think we read and we miss. And it's just this, that we're told how it is that the boy came to be this way, okay? We're told in, in Luke fifteen fourteen that there a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And see, we usually assume, and every time I hear it preached and I hear people talk about it, we assume that it was overspending that got the boy in trouble, but that's not the case. There was a famine. There was an economic downturn. There was a famine. The rains stopped coming. And who sends the rains? See, it was not as careless spending. It was God's providence. God sent a storm. And the illusion that his money gave him of being in control of his life was stripped away and he began to be in need. And it was in his need. It was out of his need that he cried out. It was out of the place of weakness and vulnerability which God led him to. In his need, we're told in verse 17, he came to himself. He woke up. It was his need. The famine produced need and out of the need he woke up and... This is the way God works, where he meets with reluctancy or obstinacy and rebellion in his people. He sends storms. Where we refuse to go out on mission with him, the way he wakes us up is he sends storms. And maybe the best example of this in the entire Bible is found in the book of Acts. And we're going to look in a couple of weeks at a passage in Acts chapter 1 where God comes to the church in Jerusalem and says, you, I'm gonna, there's power going to come upon you, the Holy Spirit's going to come, You're going to be my witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So this church is is created, I've created it for one purpose, that you would be a church-planting church that would go to all these places. And yet you get about eight or nine chapters into the book of Acts, and you see that the Jerusalem church has grown 2,000 people on the day of Pentecost, and yet somehow they've not got on board yet with the, the, you know, kind of the marching orders of God to go to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They're still all kind of huddled there in Jerusalem. And, and God looks on that, and guess what he does? He sends a persecution. And guess what happens? They scatter. And guess where they go? Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And guess what they do? They preach the gospel as they go. And guess what happens? Churches get planted, and the mission gets done. See, God sends famines. He sends persecutions. He sends economic downturns. He sends storms because he loves us, and he wants us to wake up. He wants us to turn around because when we run from him, we're running from the only one who really cares about us. We're running from life and into death, and so storms are his gracious gift to lead us to repentance, to wake us up. So see, we've got to change the way we think about these things, right? Eugene Peterson, in, his, in a book he wrote on the book of Jonah, says uh, this about the function of these storms. He says, they strip us of the essentials and reveal the basic realities of our lives to us. 
In other words, when the sea is calm, it's easy to kind of slip into cruise control and to get busy with life and having fun and to forget the deeper issues and beliefs and values, you know, just kind of put all the deep thinking stuff aside. But when the storm comes along, all those, not, all those non-essentials get stripped away and you have to dig deep down into the core of your life, into the core beliefs and convictions and values and priorities that drive your decision-making. So storms force us to provide answers to the most basic questions about who we are and why we're here and what life is about. And the kinds of questions I have in mind are like those that are asked of Jonah in the story. If you look here, when the captain, verse 6, finds him in the hole of the ship, asleep, he's indignant. I mean, literally, the ship's breaking apart, and there he is sleeping, and so the captain asks, what do you mean, you sleeper? That's an odd way of saying it, isn't it? Really, it means, how can you sleep? I mean, what are you doing asleep? Everybody else is throwing stuff overboard and crying out to their God. How can you sleep? And the, the, the phrase is meant to convey utter shock and disapproval. The boat is literally breaking apart. And Jonah doesn't even have any idea what's happening. Everybody else is running around frantic, calling out to their gods. And he's undisturbed. I mean, it's almost comical, right? And yet that's the point. And so to us, let's, let's believe, let's think imaginatively into the story for a minute this morning together. And here God asks us, how can you sleep? Jonah, look around you. God has sent a storm that is about to send you to the bottom of the sea. If you don't wake up, you're going to be destroyed. But for us, there are 80,000 people in the city of Winter Haven that have no church affiliation. How can we sleep? I mean, how dare we think, first, think about ourselves first? How dare we dream about bigger buildings that provide nicer comforts for all of us when there are tens of thousands of people in our city who need to hear about Jesus? Two billion people in the 1040 window who do not have a viable Christian witness among them. How can we sleep? See, it's meant to, it's meant to show us the complete lunacy of living in a drowsiness like this. And then the second question, which I like even better than the first, is when things begin to, they begin to discover kind of what's going on and the lot is thrown on Jonah, and they figure out it's because of him all this has come on him, and they ask this set of questions in verse 8. They say, what is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what, uh, what people are you? Can't you? They're just so nervous, they keep asking questions, and then can't wait for him to respond to their questions. They just keep, you know, who are you? I mean, who are you? And this is, this is the ultimate existential question, isn't it? I mean, who are you? What are you doing here? What's this all about? I mean, and this is what the storm does. It shakes you to the very core of your life and it forces you to answer these kinds of questions which most of the time we allow to remain under the surface of our day-to-day lives. Who are you? What are your beliefs and values and goals that are driving you underneath your, underneath your day-to-day life? I mean, why do you live where you live? Why do you work where you work? Why do you do the things you do? Who are you? What do you really believe life is about? What do you really believe ought to be the focus and direction of your life, no matter what the unique... I mean, see, who are you? The storm is, is going, you know, it's causing... It's, it's allowing for the voice of God to come into the deep, dark places of our lives that the busyness of life often allows us to keep hidden. And this is what happens. And I love Jonah's answer. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord... Verse 10, the God of heaven who made the sea. (laughs) You see all those waves out there? 
I serve the God who sent those things. And what happens is this is the beginning of Jonah's repentance. And he, fi- he, really, he wakes up. And he sees the storm around him and he figures out that there's only one thing for him to do. And he puts his, himself in the hands of God. He says, throw me overboard and the sea will become calm. I mean, that's what the storm does. The storm is designed to destroy us of our self-reliance and, and to help us see that, that, that really, at the end of the day, we have one hope, and that is that we would put ourselves unflinchingly in the hand of God to be at his disposal and at his mercy. And it's amazing, really, isn't it, that Jonah has the courage to do that because he didn't know that God can talk fish. Right? And he can. Fishermen, God speaks to fish. Right? God provided a whale to swallow him up. Jonah didn't know that whale was going to be there. He didn't know what awaited him on the other side of being thrown out of that boat. He's completely surrendered to God in this moment in his life, even only momentarily. And so, you, you know, the question that I kind of come back to and thinking is, how in the world, where do you find, I mean, how does that happen? I mean, when you wake up like that, where does the courage come from to do that? And I think that's what kind of this whole thing in chapter 2 is really about in this prayer that Jonah that Jonah prays, and it really is this what makes the story so marvelous to me. Jonah is not the hero of the story. If anything, he's the anti-hero. He's the bad guy. I mean, this isn't a story about Jonah the super prophet. It's a story about God and his mercy and how he uses screw-ups and moral failures and racists like Jonah and like you and I to accomplish his mission. And that's just marvelous to me. I mean, it really is marvelous to me. And the climax of Jonah's time in the belly of this whale that God provides is a gospel remembrance. If you look at verses 8 and 9, he remembers in, in all of his distress, somehow his heart works its way back to the steadfast love of God, verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of stead. That is that, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, that is that chesed love of God, that unfailing, never-ending, you know, stubborn love and loyalty of God to his people. And he remembers in verse 9, see, he has, he has a recognition of the fact that salvation is by grace. And so he says, salvation belongs to the Lord, verse 9. In other words, it's what he does, not what we do. We're not saved because of what we do for God. We're saved because of what God does for us. We're not saved because we went looking for God. We're saved because he came looking for us. And this is what Jonah's forgotten, that salvation belongs to the Lord. And yet it's in the middle of this, of this experience that he, that he has this gospel remembrance. And two times we're told, verse 4 and verse 7, in his distress, somehow he finds the courage, he, in, in spite of all of his sin, and in spite of, of living in the consequences of his disobedience and all of the, the ways that when I'm there, and Ashley can tell you, I'm just beating myself to death in those moments. You're so stupid, you know. Help! And yet Jonah doesn't give in to that. He looks to the temple. Verse 4. I said, I'm driven away from your sight, and yet shall I again look upon your holy temple. Verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. See, the temple, the significance of that is in the Jewish mindset, the temple is the place of sacrifice. It was the place where God met with his people through a sacrifice, it was the place where God, through a bloody sacrifice, atoned for the sins of his people. And Jonah says, I have one hope. I mean, here I am. I mean, can you imagine? Here I am at the bottom of the sea in the belly of a fish. I mean, I have one hope. And it's not that God would look upon me and say, you know what, I made a mistake about that guy. He really is a pretty good guy. And, and he says, I have one hope, and that is that God will be merciful. And, the, and the, the thing that excites my imagination towards the consideration of the mercy of God 
is the temple where the animals are sacrificed and the blood is spilt so that God might look upon his people and say, I do not charge you with your sin because they're taken care of in the sacrifice that I provided for you. Instead, I offer you forgiveness and mercy. And, and he says, I look to the temple. My hope, is in the, my hope is in a God who will pay for my sins, not with my own blood, but with the blood of another. And what's fascinating is, is as the story gets told in the New Testament, Jonah becomes a living analogy of how God would fulfill what the temple is all about in Matthew chapter 12. When the religious leaders ask Jesus for a sign to authenticate his ministry, he tells them that the only sign that they will be given is the sign of Jonah. Remember this, that just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so Jesus is going to spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth because he's going to across the die for his people. He's going to be the ultimate sacrifice that the temple pointed forward to. I mean, Jesus is the one greater than Jonah, that just as Jonah was voluntarily thrown into the stormy sea to save the sailors in the boat, so Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will voluntarily be thrown into an ocean of eternal justice and divine wrath to save us from the wrath that was due to us because of our sin. And when this kind of gospel remembrance happens, look what, look what happens in Jonah, when, when this truth, when the Hesed love of God for you in Jesus Christ and Jesus' death in your place, when, when all that the temple pointed forward to, when it becomes, uh, you know, comes into your life and, and you, you, you experience it and sense it in a new way, what happens? You wake up. You experience a spiritual revolution. In other words, when you realize that you did nothing and you got everything, and that's what we mean by salvation belongs to the Lord. It's what he does, not what I do. He came running after me. I didn't go running after him. It's a work of grace. When I realized I did nothing and I got everything, only then will I be willing to do anything. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again. Go to Nineveh. And Jonah makes a mad dash for Tarshish, but in the next chapter, in chapter 3, the word of the Lord comes yet again. Arise and go to Nineveh. And Jonah goes to Nineveh. See, he's had a spiritual breakthrough. He's experienced a spiritual transformation because of the gospel remembrance. See, the issue is the gospel. The more, the more we come to see the gospel of grace, the more it will propel us to a life of mission. But there's a third thing here, and I'm just going to very quickly, uh, as we draw to a close, point it out to you. And the third thing this passage offers us is some encouragement because look what happens, right? Look what happens. And so the, the scripture is forming us as a people who live on mission, that just as Jonah was representative of Israel who had responsibility to Nineveh and the other nations of the earth. We are people who are called by God to be for our city, to live missionally, not selfishly, both in our city and our world. And so as the scripture forms us as this people, look at how we are offered a huge encouragement here, even as God calls us to go more to places like Nineveh rather than places like Tarshish. Look what happens when Jonah finally comes to Nineveh in chapter 3. They repent. The king comes off his throne. He takes off his royal garments, verses 6 through 9. He puts on sackcloth and sits down in ashes and then calls for a citywide fast. He's a sign of genuine humility and sorrow over sin. And I just want to say it is the most unexpected, unimaginable thing. I mean, Jonah had no category for this. I mean, he, he would not in a million years. I mean, this is the most unexpected, unlikely, amazing work of God that you can possibly imagine. And again, the point It's meant to point us to God's mercy and his sovereign action in our lives. Because let's be honest, everything is stacked against this response. I mean, look at Jonah's preaching. Can I just say, Jonah's preaching to Nineveh is the worst gospel presentation ever. It's terrible. He doesn't 
It's short, it's vague, it's confusing, it's offensive. He doesn't mention God, he doesn't mention sin, he doesn't call them to repentance. He, I mean, he's, it's like, it's as if, you know, it's when I, I, what I always think is when I tell my kid, you know, Isaac, say you're sorry to Abby. Sorry. It's like as little as he can, you know, as little as he can obey to actually obey, but not really his heart, you know. Jonah, Jonah go preach to Nineveh. Fine, fine. 40 days and God's going to overthrow you, you know, and I'm out of here. I mean, there's nothing there. It's terrible. And yet, God moves upon the situation. And Nineveh, the least likely people, repent. So how do we account for it? I mean, how do you account for that? How does that happen? There are a couple of clues, two of them. And I want to finish by looking at each of them. And it's just this. As we think about what it means for us to be a people, to go to our city and to our world, uh, to follow the call of God in those places. First, we see chapter 3 teaches us that God has a heart for Nineveh. God, see, what's happening is God's heart for the city is being revealed. Three times when Nineveh is mentioned in this this story, verse 3 in chapter 3, verse 1 in chapter 3, verse 2 of chapter 1, God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city. And it's easy to read that and you think, well, that just refers to the size of the city or to its geopolitical position. But that's not really what's going on. The Hebrew there means that Nineveh was a city that was great to God. And if you have an ESV Bible, the footnote of verse 3 in chapter 3 says that. Nineveh was a great city. It was a great city to God. It was great in God's heart. God loved Nineveh. Jonah didn't. But God did. God had a heart for Nineveh. And that's wonderful to me because what it it reminds me is, is God loves Winter Haven. And Haines City. And Lake Wales. And let's be honest, this isn't the, the coolest place in the world to live. I mean, there, there are much more fancy places that we could be. But God loves these places. He loves these cities. He loves the city of Winter Haven. He loves the city of Haines City. He loves uh, the city of um, Mbale, Uganda. He loves uh, the cities of the world. And his heart for the city is being revealed here because, because he loves the city He's going to work on behalf of the city. And that's the second thing is we see that not only does God have a heart for Nineveh and for our city, but secondly, what, what's revealed is that God has the power to overthrow Nineveh and to overthrow our city. And this is exactly what Jonah threatens, isn't it? Verse 4, 40 days, yet Nineveh will be overthrown. And when you read that, what do you assume he means? I mean, based upon their response, what do you think the Ninevites understand Jonah to mean? God's going to overthrow you. He's going to wipe you out. He's going to destroy you. And the verb in that sentence is very, very interesting. It can mean one of two things. It can mean God will overthrow and destroy, or it can mean God will turn around. And God does not overthrow Nineveh. He doesn't destroy the city, but look at the improbable response. Look at the repentance. These are pagan people who hang the skins of their enemies upon the wall, who who, who only rape and pillage and destroy, and who hate the God of Israel and his people. And yet, at this sorry gospel presentation that Jonah provides, they repent. God doesn't overthrow the city, he doesn't destroy the city, but in their repentance we see God has overthrown the city. And so whatever Nineveh-like experiences you may, that may be awaiting you out, whatever Nineveh-like places God might be calling you to, whatever relationships, whatever you know, structures, whatever dynamics you might be called to out in those places, I think the story is saying don't lose heart because if God, if God could overthrow my heart and bring me to repentance, if God could overthrow the heart of a man like Jonah and bring him to repentance, if God could overthrow the heart of a city like Nineveh 
and bring them to repentance, there's not a single person that stands a chance. There's not a single city that stands a chance. And you see, this is the encouragement for us to go as his people into the mission that he's called us to. And so let's pray uh, that he would continue to work by spirit to create us to be that people, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story of this man named Jonah. Uh, And it really stands by itself that there's really even no need for me to to preach on the text because even in the story, the story itself is powerful. And so I pray that you help us to see ourselves in it. If we are like Jonah running, running, just running furiously away from your presence and your face, I pray that you would be merciful to us and send a storm to bring us back to repentance. I pray if we are in the bottom of a boat asleep, just calloused and hard-hearted, that you would work by your Spirit to wake us up. Uh, Wherever there's need for repentance, I pray you grant it to us this morning that we might be a people who take seriously your call to go to places like Nineveh in our city and our world, that you would find us to be a people, even in our weakness and sin and failure and brokenness, to be willing to answer the call, the authoritative marching orders, the word of the Lord as it comes to our lives. Give us the faith and the courage to believe into obedience toward the mission you call us to, to our friends and our family and our city and to the ends of the earth. We pray these things that you might be glorified in us and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We really do believe that there are greater things yet to come and greater things still to be done in the city that God has called us to. Um, I mean, we we believe that. Uh, But the reality of that happening has very little to do with how great we are or how committed we become to the cause. Uh, Without the face and the light of God's face shining upon us, we don't stand a chance. And yet the promise of this benediction is, is that just as Jonah was running away, trying to run away from the face, the presence of the Lord, uh, that we are people, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then though you go to the far side of the sea, though you go to the bottom of the sea, his face shines upon you. Because Jesus, who was the radiance of God's glory and the perfect son from all eternity, when he died upon the cross, the father turned his face away from him. So that even in your sin, because you're forgiven and you live now in the righteousness of Christ, no matter who you are, no matter where you go, no matter how bad you blow it, no matter how far you roam, the face of God goes with you. So that's the promise of this benediction. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, and lo, I am with you always. My face will be upon you always. And so receive then this benediction, okay? As we go out, this is, we are, this is ascending. We have gathered together to worship and are now being sent by God into the world. So as you go, receive this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Ready? May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.